Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... More space interviews for audio installation Mind's Eye. Shoshana Weeder on Messenger's mission to Mercury. And then Matt Taylor brings us up to date with Rosetta. You may recall last year a number of special editions of Little Atoms. Interviews with space scientists recorded for an audio installation Mind's Eye. Well, that audio installation is now on tour and can be seen this week as part of Smashfest UK at the Albany Theatre in Deptford. And so here's two interviews recorded for that new tour. Thanks to Andy Franzkowiak and Mary Jane Edwards of Shrinking Space for making these interviews possible. Coming up are Dr Shoshana Weeder, formerly a postdoctorate fellow on NASA's Messenger mission to Mercury, and then Dr Matt Taylor, who is project scientist on ESA's Rosetta mission. I'm Shoshana Weeder. Um, I'm a planetary geologist by training. Most recently, I've been working as a postdoctoral fellow at the Carnegie Institution of Washington in Washington, D.C. Um, and right now, I'm living back in London, working as a science editor, writer, and communicator. We're going to talk about Messenger, the mission to Mercury that you've worked on, but let's talk about some things you've done before Messenger, perhaps. What else have you worked on? Um, so before working on the Messenger project, during my PhD at Berkeley College in London, I was involved in another planetary mission called Chandrayaan-1 which was the first satellite to orbit the moon from the Indian Space Research Organization. So that satellite orbited the moon between 2008 and 2009, and I was involved with the interpretation of data from one of the instruments on board, and I helped the team that built the instrument in the UK. So what sort of things was that looking for? The instrument I was working on is called an X-ray spectrometer, which uses a technique to measure the surface chemistry of planets in the inner solar system like the moon and mercury that don't have atmospheres so we were looking at the actual elements that make up the minerals and rocks on the surface of the moon so we'll come back to the the x-ray spectrometer when we talk more about mercury but just while we're here you mentioned planets that don't have atmospheres so what's the relevance of that for the technique of x-ray well, that you use in X-ray spectrometry called X-ray fluorescence, we rely on X-rays that are emitted from the sun during solar flares to hit the surface of the planet and actually cause excitation of the atoms there. And that excitation causes other X-rays to be emitted from the atoms on the surface and then 
those are detected by the orbiting spacecraft. And if you have an atmosphere around a planet, that atmosphere will absorb those x-rays and that whole technique will not work. So you, you really can't do this from orbit um, unless the planet has no atmosphere. So you've used that technique on the Moon and latterly Mercury, but where else would that be used? So it can also be used um, and has been used for near-Earth asteroids. The NEAR mission, for instance, that went to the asteroid Eros um, had an X-ray spectrometer on board. But other than that, you can use X-ray spectrometers on Earth in the lab. They're a standard geochemistry technique for measuring the composition of materials. So let's talk about... Messenger then, which was the mission to to Mercury. What was the aim of that mission when it was first mooted? The uh, Messenger mission, which is the first spacecraft to have gone into orbit around Mercury, was um, or is uh, one of NASA's Discovery class missions. So these are led by principal investigators, scientists, in this case Sean Solomon, who leaded a team of scientists and engineers for a mission to somewhere led um, by the driving principle of missions that are faster, cheaper, and better. So Mercury had previously been very much unexplored during humans' exploration of the solar system. It's previously been visited by Mariner 10 back in the 1970s, but it really just flew past the planet a few times and did not go into orbit. So the view we had of Mercury before Messenger was actually very, very minimal. The driving principle of Messenger was to learn as much as possible about Mercury, seeing as we knew very little before. So what sort of things did we learn on the Mariner 10 mission that sort of piqued our interest and made us want to go back? Why did we want to go back to Mercury? From Mariner 10, we actually only imaged up close less than a third of Mercury's surface. So until Messenger got to Mercury, we had seen less than half of the planet up close. So that, as a starting point, was a primary goal of the Messenger mission, just to get images and see what the planet really looks like. But on top of that, from Mariner 10, we knew that Mercury has a weak magnetic field, like Earth has a magnetic field, but not all the planets do. We know that Mercury has a what we call an exosphere, which is basically a very, very thin atmosphere. And we knew that it had certain species within, within the exosphere. We knew very little about the planet. So you mentioned this, uh, the principle of faster, cheaper, better. I mean, I guess um, better is, is, is somewhat subjective, but I want to sort of talk about why this mission was funded when others perhaps weren't. So why was Messenger able to be done faster and cheaper? Like any discovery mission, they are proposed by the team of scientists and then they, are, they go through a peer review process. So during that process, uh, NASA obviously decided that Mercury was a better option than other proposed missions, and I can't, I can't necessarily speak for their reasoning. It was faster because it used a lot of existing technology. For instance, the instrument that I work on, the X-ray spectrometer, is really a minimal development from technology that was actually flown on the Apollo missions. Apollo 15 and 16 both had X-ray spectrometers on the um, portion of the spacecraft that stayed in orbit around the moon. So there was very little development of the actual instrumentation for the mission itself. At what point in the mission are we now? Where is where is Messenger as we talk? So Messenger right now is going round and round of Mercury, as it has been for the last four years. It went into orbit during March of 2011. And sadly, we're actually approaching very rapidly the end of the mission. It is currently due to crash into Mercury 
um, because its fuel reserves are pretty much all eaten up. Um, and that's due to happen in April of this year, 2015. And hasn't it already exceeded expectations? So it's all its mission is already technically over, isn't it? And now you're sort of in an extension. Exactly. So um, uh, Messenger was originally launched in 2004. I mean, it took a number of years to whirl its way into Mercury's orbit. Like I said, happened in 2011. And from that point, it went into its primary mission, which was a one-year mission, which was the, what the spacecraft was originally designed to achieve. And then since that time in 2012, we've been in an extended mission. So everything that we have obtained science-wise since 2012 is a bonus. Yes, um, the engineers keep finding ways to keep it going a bit longer. But alas, that won't happen forever. I want to talk about how how it got there, because there are numerous reasons that make Mercury a difficult place to get to in comparison to perhaps some other solar system destinations. So how did Messenger get from Earth to Mercury? So getting a spacecraft into orbit around Mercury is problematic, really for two main reasons. The first of which is to do with gravity. To launch something from Earth towards the sun, i.e. going into the inner part of the solar system. It means that your spacecraft is travelling towards the sun and its huge gravitational field, and it's therefore speeding up all the time. But in order to get into orbit around a planet, you need the spacecraft to be captured by the smaller gravitational field of the planet itself. So for the case of Mercury, which is very close to the sun and a very small planet, you have these fighting gravitational forces from the sun and Mercury. And so the engineers had to find a way to slow messenger down enough that mercury's weak gravitational field would capture the planet when it got there Um, and so to do that instead of just putting the brakes on which requires lots of fuel and therefore makes your spacecraft heavier to begin with and costs more to launch from earth they devised a very windy route into the inner solar system towards mercury and that involved what we call flybys which slow the spacecraft down each time one of the earth one of venus and then three of Mercury itself before it actually went into orbit. And then, yeah, and so that took almost seven years. And then the second main challenge of putting a spacecraft in orbit around Mercury is the intense heat that you have to deal with because you're so close to the sun. And there are various things that were devised to deal with that. The spacecraft itself, well, the instruments on the main part of the spacecraft are shielded by a sunshade that's made of a specially designed ceramic material that can withstand very high temperatures. And that sunshade always stays between the sun and all the instruments on the spacecraft and so protects them from a certain amount of the heat. Another heat mitigating design feature on the spacecraft are the solar panels which power the spacecraft. There are two of these solar panels but these panels are actually made two-thirds of just mirrors so instead of absorbing all the, the radiation from the sun, they are actually reflecting a lot of the heat away from the spacecraft. Can you describe what Messenger looks like? How big is it? What sort of equipment it's carrying? So the spacecraft itself is relatively small. The main part of it, which contains all the all the scientific instruments and the wiring and all the electronics, etc., is kind of a cylindrical shape, but a messy cylindrical shape. So I imagine it like a big, lots of Lego blocks stuck together. And that's around two just under two metres tall, around one and a half metres wide, and then slightly less, so about just over a metre deep. And that is then surrounded on one side by the arch of the sunshade that's protecting it from the heat of the sun. And off to the side of that main part of the spacecraft are these two solar panels, which I think look a bit like wings. And then the last 
main feature that you can see in the spacecraft is an antenna which sticks out so that we can talk from Earth to the spacecraft and communicate with it and get all the data we need and tell it what to do as well. And what about Mercury? Can we talk about what Mercury would look like from Messenger? So what the planet looks like rather than we'll talk about the the actual analysis of the actual data in a while. But what does Mercury look like from orbit? To an untrained naked eye, Mercury looks very much like the moon. It's grey. It's covered in craters um, of all different sizes. It's also got lots of what we call fractures and cracks, which formed when the planet was cooling and contracting. There are certain parts of the surface which are younger than others. They're all very old. They're all over billions of years old. But there are some parts which are younger and therefore have had less time to accumulate craters, impact craters on them. And therefore these younger parts look smoother than the older parts, ones with more craters. And if you were standing on the surface itself, I think it would look very much like the pictures we see from the moon when the astronauts, the Apollo astronauts were on the moon. It would be a very dusty environment. It would obviously be very hot when you're in the sun, but then again, it would be very, very cold when you're out of the sun because Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere and therefore can't retain much of the heat from the sun. Let's talk about your role in Messenger then. What was your role in the mission? So as a postdoctoral fellow on the Messenger mission, I was working at the Carnegie Institution of Science, which is in Washington, D.C., and I was working with the deputy principal investigator of the mission, Larry Niller, and together we were responsible for analysing and interpreting the data that we got from the X-ray spectrometer on board, which gives us a measure of the surface chemistry of the planet. And what does that what does that data look like when you get it? So I spend a lot of my time when I'm analysing the data looking at spectra, X-ray spectra, which are basically lots and lots of wiggles. And the wiggles have bumps in them, and the bumps relate to different energies, which are characteristic of different elements on the surface of the planet. And the bigger the bumps for certain elements, the more there is of that element on the surface of the planet. So let's talk about what we've learned about the chemical composition of Mercury's surface from that data. Before Messenger, we knew very little about the surface chemistry of Mercury. Because Mercury looks so much like the Moon, uh, lots of people assumed that they'd be very similar in their chemical composition. However, from the Messenger data, we learned that isn't necessarily true. The moon, for instance, um, is mostly covered by a, a rock type called anorthosite, which is very rich in the elements calcium and aluminium. But from the messenger X-ray spectrometer data, we've learned that Mercury is, has actually got quite a lot less of those elements, calcium and aluminium, and instead has a lot of magnesium at its surface. From those measurements, we think that Mercury's surface is probably covered by rocks, which are much like basalts we see on Earth, and also um, a more rare type of rock that we find in certain places on Earth called comatiites, which are very magnesium-rich rocks. And is that composition surprising? Those compositions are not necessarily that surprising. They are common rocks that you find on Earth and other terrestrial bodies. But there is other aspects of the chemistry of the surface that we've learnt about that are more surprising. Those, I would say, kind of fall into two categories. One being related to what we call volatile species and another which relates to iron. So firstly, for the volatiles, um, volatiles are, are chemicals that are lost easily when you heat a rock. So water is a good example. Water is, can evaporate easily when you heat a substance. And because mercury is so close to the sun and obviously therefore very hot, you wouldn't expect there to be many of these volatile elements on the surface of mercury. You would have expect them to have been lost 
either during the formation of the planet itself or later on during its evolution. But messenger results, both from the X-ray spectrometer and other instruments such as the neutron spectrometer on board, have taught us that there are actually significant deposits of water ice at Mercury's poles. Uh, we find these in areas of what we call permanent shadow within craters near the poles that never see sunlight and therefore are very cold and they can, they can contain ice and it won't evaporate away. Other volatiles that we see a lot of on Mercury include sulfur that we see with the X-ray spectrometer. And the abundance of sulfur on Mercury's surface is about 10 times what we see on other rocky planets like the Earth and Mars. And then talking about iron, which is, I would say, one of the other major surprises we've had from learning about the surface chemistry of Mercury. We know that Mercury is a very dense planet, um, which tells us that the planet as a whole has a lot of iron, a dense metal. And most of that metal normally goes into the core of a planet. Now, Mercury is so dense, and therefore we think that the core of the planet is disproportionately large compared with other planets in the solar system. Now, from telescopic measurements we've made for many years from Earth, we know that there's very little iron in certain types of minerals, what we call silicate minerals. But people assumed that iron on the surface is therefore contained within other types of minerals. But we didn't have the capabilities to measure those iron content of those minerals before the X-ray spectrometer and the gamma-ray spectrometer on board MESSENGER. So from those, we've actually learned that there's almost no iron at all on the surface of Mercury, and therefore all the iron in the planet, this iron-rich planet, is actually below the surface. It's in the mantle of the planet and in the core of the planet rather than at the surface. Do we have any idea why that might be? What might have caused that? So there are different ideas which relate to the formation hypotheses for Mercury itself. Some of those are that the materials that originally accreted, that built the planet, that were also very rich in iron compared to other materials that built other parts of the solar system. And that would be a function of Mercury's place in the solar system, it being closest to the sun. Other people have postulated that Mercury actually used to be a much bigger planet, but very early on in its history, a huge impact event basically another protoplanet slammed into this earlier larger mercury caused the outer parts of the early mercury to be lost so the parts that were less dense the less rich in iron were lost from mercury itself and what we have left is basically the core of that original planet what else do we know about the like the sort of geological history of the planet beyond that as well i mean was it ever volcanically active or geologically active in in the way that earth is so from MESSENGER, we have learned lots about the geological evolution of Mercury. And we've seen that Mercury really is a planet that has been formed or sculpted by volcanism of different types through its history. The deposits we see at the surface, the youngest ones are what we call smooth plains deposits. And these are, are very much like floodplain deposits you would get on Earth or on the moon, even the Mare regions of the moon, which are very smooth. And through time, these have been created, and it's likely that the composition of those volcanic deposits has changed over time, and depending on where on the planet they were erupted from. We also know that there's been evidence of pyroclastic activity on Mercury as well. Um, various pyroclastic deposits have now been identified all across the planet. And this is obviously not going on still. This is obviously historical, is it? Yes, it's probably volcanism on Mercury probably seized over a billion years ago. But there are certain people that would argue that there may be evidence for some more recent activity. But that's very slight, if at all. 
So beyond the what you've already mentioned about the very hot and the very cold, depending on period of rotation or whatever, what other aspects of being right near the sun affect Mercury then? Because I said about, you know, is there still volcanic activity? Because we talk about, like, say, for instance, Io or something as being, like, you know, affected by the, the gravitational pull of Jupiter. So what does what effects does being right close to the sun have on Mercury? So the orbit of Mercury is obviously affected by the sun's gravity in a way that is probably more so than other planets further up in the solar system. On top of that, because the Mercury is so close to the sun, its interaction with what we call the space weather or the solar wind is much greater than for other planets. And that is another aspect of the messenger mission is to study not just necessarily the planet itself, but the surrounding environment of the Mercury environment near to the sun. What discoveries have have been made in your work particularly? The work that I have done in particular, we've discovered these um, high sulfur contents that I was talking about, these low iron abundances on the surface. The fact that the variations in surface composition we see across Mercury's surface do not necessarily align with units that have been mapped previously based on the morphology, the shapes, um, etc. of the geology. So in some cases, boundaries that are mapped using photos and images do not always line up with the boundaries we see between different chemical terrains, terrains, areas of, or areas of the planet that have vastly different compositions. We've now mapped 100% of the surface, so how much variation is there? In terms of what it looks like, I guess, you know, there's more than the geology. How varied is, because you've mentioned again, sort of described it at like a planet that would look like the moon. But, to, you know, to what extent is there more geographical variation? So compared, for instance, uh, with the moon, Mercury isn't so variable on the surface. When you look at the moon, you see the, the whiter areas and you see the darker areas. And those are representative of different types of rock. The, the variance on, on Mercury is much more subtle because you don't have these two very different types of rocks. So just with the naked eye, the two, the different composition, chemically composition materials, you can't see with the eye, you can't see in images, but you can see with, with the instruments like the X-ray spectrometer and the gamma-ray spectrometer. So that kind of shows you the value of having a, a complete range of remote sensing instruments on a satellite. Obviously, when you start looking in detail at photos and images from Mercury, you do start to see differences. Younger areas tend to be brighter than darker areas. And like I said, younger areas are also less, have fewer craters on them than the older areas. But these are differences you, that are much more subtle and you see more on a local scale than you do on a global scale. What's the most surprising thing that you've found in your study of Mercury? I would say the most surprising thing for me that we have learned from Messenger is the discovery of water ice at the poles of Mercury. We knew before messenger and this was one of the driving science questions of the mission itself that there were certain deposits at the poles in craters that are permanently shadowed that have very bright radar reflectances these are measurements that can be taken from earth we didn't know what was causing these very bright radar signatures some people said that it could be water ice some people said it could be sulfur deposits and based on measurements from three different instruments on board Messenger, we can now pretty conclusively say that those radar signals are due to there being water-rich materials near the poles of Mercury, which is a surprise, obviously, because Mercury as a whole is a very hot planet. 
We've already talked about the end of the mission. It's pretty conclusive. Messenger's going to crash into the planet. But if you could extend mission further, what haven't you done? What what would you like to... If Messenger could have a, a mission extension, what more would you like to do? So obviously, if, if I could have my way, I'd let Messenger go on and on and on. Obviously, the longer we go, the, the better the data we can get, the more scientifically interesting data we can obtain. And this is particularly important for a place like Mercury, which is so infrequently visited by spacecraft. Also, as I was saying earlier, some of the instruments on board the spacecraft are there to, to study the, the space environment rather than the planet itself. The space environment changes very much with the activity of the sun. Now, most solar cycles last 11 years, so to see as much of a one solar cycle as possible with Messenger would be a, would be very much a boon. But in, if I was living in a dream world, I think I would add a little bit extra to the Messenger mission. And rather than it just being a, a satellite just orbiting Mercury, I'd add another part of it that would actually land on Mercury itself and collect at least one, hopefully lots, of rocks samples. And then that we could either measure on the surface itself or that we could return home to Earth so that we could take into a lab and, and measure all kinds of things about them that, as a geologist, would help us so much in understanding these rich data sets we now have from orbit. Just finally then, let's, let's finish off talking about the actual future exploration of Mercury. There is another mission planned, BepiCumba, which is a, it's not a NASA mission, it's a European Space Agency and Japanese Space Agency mission. But how does that, how will that complement what we've discovered on Messenger? After Messenger has ended, the next planned exploration of Mercury is by a mission called BepiColombo, which is a European Space Agency and Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency joint initiative um, that's due to be launched, I think, next year in 2016. But it won't arrive at Mercury until about 2024. And like Messenger, it has this mission has a number of its own scientific objectives. Obviously, some of them are in, very similar to those of Messenger, obviously to study the origin and the evolution of the planet. BepiColombo want to be in a different kind of orbit to Messenger. Messenger has been in a very elliptical orbit so that we're very close to the planet over the northern hemisphere but far away from the planet over the southern hemisphere. So the view we have of Mercury is quite lopsided. We, we know much more about the northern hemisphere than we do the southern hemisphere. But BepiColombo will be in a much more circular orbit and that lopsided view of the planet will not be the, necessarily the case. BepiColombo itself is actually two spacecraft. There'll be the main the main part that will study the planet, and then there'll be a separate part, which is the Japanese part of the mission, that will study the, the magnetic field of Mercury. Shoshana Ouida, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. James Ward, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. My name's Matt Taylor. I am the European Space Agency project scientist of the Rosetta mission. Um, what that means in terms of 
or the representative of the scientific community on the mission within ESA. So it's my job to impose the constraints and the requests and the requirements of the scientific community on the mission. So I work very closely with the science operations teams and the mission operations teams to ensure that given the constraints that we have of flying around an object that we didn't even hear about. How did you get involved in the whole space astrophysics world in the first place, Matt? My career path to now, to date, began obviously at at school, at junior school, high school, and then A-levels in the UK. And I was uh, in the scientific direction, as it were. So I did uh, applied maths, maths and physics at A-level, did an undergraduate degree in the University of Liverpool in physics, and then went on to do a PhD in space plasma physics at Imperial College. That's kind of your career path towards research science, which is what I then embarked on. So I was working then on a mission called uh, Cluster, which is a four spacecraft mission is still flying around the earth at the moment it investigates the interaction between the outer atmosphere of the sun the solar its solar wind which is constantly expanding away from the sun and how that interacts and buffets the magnetic field of the earth so i began my career as a postdoctoral researcher you kind of even though you've done your phd you never stop learning you carry on investigating and searching and writing papers i was doing that at both mullard space science laboratory which is part of uh, university college london that's uh, a special site down in surrey and i I also did a postdoc placement at Los Alamos National Lab, where well, mainly famous for building uh, atomic weapons in World War II. But I was there again, working on the cluster mission on different instruments, and then I came back to the UK to work on the Double Star mission, which was the first European-Chinese collaboration in magnetospheric physics. The magnetosphere is this this cavity carved out in the solar wind by the Earth's magnetic field as the solar wind's blowing past. But the Double Star was basically the Chinese uh, wanted to fly some spacecraft and we did a collaboration with them. They built two spacecraft and we used flight spare instruments, a number of flight spare instruments from the European side from Cluster, put them on this spacecraft uh, along with some Chinese instruments and flew them in concert with uh, the Cluster mission. So we ended up with six spacecraft flying around the magnetosphere and we had some fantastic science being done there. Off the back of that, I was doing commanding at MSSL, at Mullard Space Science Laboratory, of an instrument, an electron instrument on Double Star. Then I applied for a job here at the European Space Agency, which was basically to be working in project science. So this kind of representation of the scientific community within ESA. And I got a position on Cluster as a deputy project scientist. And over the years, I evolved to become the full project scientist, as it were. So I got a badge and everything. No, I didn't. And recently, within the last two years, I had the opportunity to become the project scientist of Rosetta. And such an opportunity doesn't come round very often for such a, a fantastic mission. And I jumped at it. And the rest is history, I guess. Or there's not much left of history. That's it. That's where I am now. Well, I spoke to former project scientist Gerhard Schwer last year about the Rosetta mission, about what its aims were. But Matt, can you just give us a quick recap what Rosetta is and what it was for? To try and encapsulate what Rosetta is, is uh, pretty difficult in short terms. Basically, Rosetta is a science mission to investigate a comet, to fully characterise a comet to the best of our abilities thus far. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It has two components. It has an orbiter, the Rosetta orbiter, and also Philae, the lander. And since you spoke to Gerhard, I believe, midway through the autumn of last year, since then we were able to deploy the Philae lander to the surface of the target comet that we'd been chasing after for about 10 years. And that went kind of according to plan. Whereabouts is the comet and Rosetta now as we speak? At the moment, the comet is actually on the other side of the sun. This is one of the problems we have with deep space travel and deep space Uh, missions is communications and and trying to target these objects that we're trying to fly to. This is one of the major challenges of Rosetta was actually to get into orbit with the comet. So we we are in the same orbit as the comet is around the sun. And that was a a massive challenge in terms of operations, um, just trying to bullseye something over over the timescales that we were were looking at. But at the moment, it's kind of on the other side of the sun. This is a challenge in terms of signals. Uh, When we try and receive signals from the spacecraft, it's quite difficult because they get perturbed by the sun being in the way. Uh, These signals take over half an hour to get to us and vice versa. When we send signals to Rosetta, they take about half an hour to get there because that's how far away it is. So it's complicated by the sun at the moment, but we're gradually coming out of this conjunction and we will start to get better signals and uh, we'll get more data being transferred from the spacecraft to Earth. And, you know, there's more fun to be had in the next few months. On the way to the comet, Rosetta passed a couple of asteroids and did some science looking at those asteroids. Was that a bonus because they were going to be there? Or is there something in looking at those asteroids that will enable us to better study the comet? The mission overall had a a specific profile designed before launch so that the 10 years that it took us to get to Churumov-Gerasimenko, the target comet, we had to fly by the Earth three times. We had to fly by Mars once. We used the gravity of these bodies to slingshot us out, to get us out in the correct orbit, to be able to capture the comet's orbit. And part of that journey was to investigate two asteroids on the way, uh, asteroid Steins and asteroid Lutitia. That was part of the science of the mission, to actually look at these small bodies, these asteroids. We consider that well, if, if we look at comets and asteroids as a family, we actually refer to them as small bodies of the solar system. So in a way, we were doing similar science by looking at the asteroids. These had never been looked at close up. So uh, Steins and Lutitia revealed by Rosetta some interesting aspects, their ages and, and how they'd evolved to where they are today. And gave us extra science, but it was science that we planned to do with the mission. And it also allowed us to get a bit of a better feel of flying Rosetta close to, or relatively close, to a small body. Although the flybys were very different to actually ultimately what we've done now with Rosetta. In August last year, we rendezvoused with it. So we got within 100 kilometers and slowed right down to walking pace, which we didn't do at those asteroids. But the flybys enabled us to get a better feel for the, the capabilities of the spacecraft. And also, the reason we did that in the first place was to do science of those asteroids and we got some very good science results out of it. 
You mentioned the difficulty of Rosetta staying in the same orbit as the comet. So how does it? How do you keep the two together? One of the major challenges of keeping in the same orbit as a comet is the very nature of why we were at a comet in the first place. A comet is a very volatile and active body, at least when it gets close to the sun. We targeted the rendezvous to be far enough away from the sun so that the body, the comet itself, was relatively inert, so it wasn't producing too much gas. As the comet approaches the sun, as it is now, it's starting to produce more and more material. So we believe these comets are made at least of 50% of of water, ice, and, and, and other volatiles. And when they get close to the sun, they start to sublimate. So this ice translates directly into gas and is emitted by the comet. This is actually what causes this massive cometary atmosphere and coma and the tail that we see, or we're at least familiar with from the ground. And that's then a challenge if you're going to go and put a spacecraft into orbit around such a body. So we timed everything such that we were able to catch up with the comet and start to map and get a feel for the comet last year and throughout most of last year, both for getting a feel for being able to, you know, kind of riding the bike as it were. So we so we got a good feel for how to do what we, we wanted to do for the rest of this year, but also to target the landing site for the lander Philae. The challenge now is that we've gone beyond the point where we're able to actually get into a gravitational bound orbit. The classic orbit that one would consider that we have of, of the moon, of ourselves around the sun, and any other satellite that we have flying around the Earth and other planets, they're bound by gravity. So they have particular orbit elements that enable them to have this periodic orbit. We can no longer do that with Rosetta around the comet Turimov-Gerasimenko because the outflow of the gases is too much and overcomes the gravitational attraction between the two bodies. So we're on these more specialized orbits, these very strange box-like orbits, and we do these flybys, and it's not, you know, classically an ellipse or, or, or a round orbit now. We do these very strange concocted orbits, or, or I think they're actually technically called hyperbolic orbits, but the trajectories are, are quite strange if one considers a normal, a nominal orbit, as it were. But we're still getting up close. Just on the 14th of February, we got within about seven kilometers of the surface of the comet and then flew very far away. We're about 250 kilometers at the moment. But we're going to undergo a number of these kind of flybys now, basically driven by the fact that the comet is becoming more and more active. And we'll actually get the most active between August and September this year when we're talking tons of material flying off of the comet in a second. You just said a moment ago, Matt, very carefully, like a scientist, we believe the comet to be composed of water ice. Well, we're there now in orbit around a comet. So let's talk about what we've learned so far. What is it made of? Well, it's still clear that there is water coming off of the comet. We have measured, well, early last year in Maiden Frame, we made this fantastic measurement. I think you can, the analogy is such that if you were going out in your back garden uh, at night and you looked up at the moon and squinted at it, and if you had a particular instrument in your eye, the equivalent to what Rosetta did was for you to be measuring about two small cups of water of being emitted from the moon's surface per second. So that's the kind, that's the measurement we made with Rosetta at the same distance. We were able to ascertain that there was this much water, about half a litre of water, coming off of the comet per second at that time. Now this is is much greater than that now. We're talking litres of water being emitted, and this will gradually
gradually increase as we approach the sun and get closer and closer. Now, if you're seeing water, you immediately think, well, it's going to be a nice big shiny block of ice, but that's not the case. We saw again last year, some of the first results we're seeing was in fact something that we'd seen in previous comets is that they're very, very dark. They're not what you'd expect for something that is emitting so much water. They have an albedo, a kind of uh, a measure of the reflectance of light that is very, very low. It's something like, it's less than Asheville. It's about five or six percent of the light that's incident on the comet is actually reflected. So it's very, very dark. The images that we see are especially scaled so that you can bring out all the features on the surface, but they're very, very dark. And that dark surface is quite dehydrated from what we're observing and how we're measuring. So it's like a, a very, as I say, dehydrated crust, but it's made of carbon and, and organic. So there's the mix of ice but also the organic material that we're, we're interested in observing with Rosetta and seeing how that evolves. And these are things that we've seen or had inferences from with previous missions, but now we're able to observe how this material, how its interaction evolves with time as we go around the sun. So really to try and unlock how the comet works, how this interaction with the sun, this sublimation process and the subsequent emission of gases and dust, how that grows, how it interacts with the solar wind as well, the outer atmosphere of the Sun. All of this is what we're starting to look at now. So we have these first inferences, the kind of, how can I put it, the baseline results of, of the mission in terms of what the nucleus looks like. So the nucleus is the, the kind of the body of the comet itself, the real, the central heart of the comet. And then from that, the coma grows out of, you know, this, this sublimation of water and then uh, subsequent lifting off of dust particles, this, this outer crust that I was talking about. You get the particles from that being lifted off and forming this outer atmosphere. So we're getting a, a first inference of what that looked like, how it was forming, and now subsequent measurements we make this year, right the way through this year, will identify how the comet changes due to this interaction with the sun. And that, that's the major thing that we're doing with Rosetta. It enables us to see how a comet works. And that's something different. We have ideas of how a comet works based on these snapshots that we've had with previous missions. Previous missions to comets have only ever flown past. They've been provided this epoch in time over a few hours of what the comet's doing at that time. But with Rosetta, we're there right the way through its major activity period and as the activity wanes. So we get to see how this thing works, how it grows, how it wanes in terms of activity. And we'll be able to measure differences in the surface, how its features have changed. There'll be many possible meters of material would have been lost over this time frame of the year and we'll be able to even measure a difference in the volume so all of that will enable us to have a better idea of what a comet is made of how it works and then those observations will allow us to put into context any other observations we've made of a comet previously Let's talk about Philae, the lander then. So as you mentioned, since the last time I talked about Rosetta on, on the radio show, Philae has made contact with the comet, has landed on the comet. So let's talk about the day that the landing happened, the 12th of November 2014. What was the atmosphere like at ESA when that was happening? The landing event of uh, Philae being deployed to the surface of the comet was quite a, a roller coaster ride in terms of emotions. The evening before, so late on uh, the 11th of November, there were a couple of issues that came up with respect to the lander, which we had to resolve. We had some meetings to indicate where we thought things could be dealt with. The whole process of deploying the lander to the comet went took us through a number of go-no-go -go scenarios. And at some point, we were discussing a possible no-go the day before. But ultimately, at about three o'clock in the morning, uh, I received a, a text message saying that we'd go. And that's when I woke up on the 
the 12th of November, having been in bed for about two and a half hours, to then go down to mission control and, uh, and observe the ongoing saga that is the, the deployment of a, of a spacecraft to the surface of, a, of an alien body. And that was the beginning of a, the longest day. Uh, it really was uh, a roller coaster ride. The difference between other events that we've had with Rosetta, Rosetta is um, a very dramatic mission we have had times last year where well for instance we went so because we're chasing this comet we went so far away from the sun that we had to kind of put the spacecraft to sleep we put it into hibernation because it was too far away from the sun for the solar rays of the spacecraft to power the onboard basically to power the spacecraft so we put it to sleep and then we came out of hibernation in january 2014 but we didn't know whether the spacecraft was there or not and so when it came out of hibernation there was a massive relief because we didn't know up to when we got that signal whether it was there, whether it was going to come back or not. On the 12th of November for the lander deployment, we had telemetry throughout the day. So we had these kind of milestones where the deployment, we said, yes, it's going to go ahead because we'd had a certain maneuver and it looked good. We were then able to go to the next stage, which was to do the lander deployment. We deployed the lander. The lander successfully moved away from the orbiter spacecraft. We were then able to confirm that the lander was looking good. It was it was doing as it was supposed to do, which is to descend towards the surface. And then we got the signal or we got an indication that the lander had uh, abruptly rested itself on the comet's surface. Now, subsequent to that piece of information, we realized that it had stopped, but then it had carried on going again. So we've, we've learned quite quickly that it hadn't just landed. It had landed and decided to go for a little jaunt across the surface of the comet. And what we ended up with was not just one, but we had three landings of fillet on the comet's surface. So we got more than we bargained for, both scientifically and emotionally. Let's just take a step back and tell me about the landing site. How was it chosen? What were the criteria? What were you looking for in terms of the challenge of landing fillet, but also the science that would be done once you'd landed it? If we recall now, we're in February 2015. This time last year, we still didn't know what the comet really looked like. So we still had this idea that it was a grey potato. And very quickly, within the next few months leading up to summer, we quickly learned what the comet looked like. And it was uh, beyond our wildest expectations in terms of this um, this duck-shaped body. On top of just the general overall shape, the surface properties were highly variable. We were seeing features, my colleagues were immediately saying, there were features from kind of all of the comets that they'd ever observed. So it was a good comet. Ultimately, it's been a good comet to choose, but that also added to the challenge of trying to deploy a lander on the surface. The challenges you have when you're trying to drop a washing machine-sized 100-kilo uh, lump of metal and, uh, well, say lump of metal, a lump of fantastic scientific instruments and uh, complicated spacecraft, is trying to make sure you're going to target somewhere where it's not too dangerous for the lander to actually land. And that was a major challenge in terms of our landing site selection, which began in kind of August time frame, where from then on we had a number of uh, observations being made by the orbiter to map the comet's surface, to really identify the best place both scientifically and both operationally to land. We were kind of making discussions or the discussions about landing site were looking at where we thought there were active regions, where we thought the material was least processed so that we'd be going somewhere where we're really digging into the most primordial material, sampling the most primordial material 
on the surface. But on top of that, you have the constraints of whether you can actually deploy the lander there in the first place. And if you do deploy the lander, whether it's successfully going to be able to land. So we were looking at the local gradient of the comet, looking at how many boulders. We have so many boulders on this body that they range from meter size, 50 centimeters, tens of centimeters, up to 40, 50 meters. So we're talking from house to cricket ball to, to golf ball size boulders and rocks. Or Well, I, I say rocks loosely, but the composite materials, that these lumps, as it were, uh, range from many different scales. And so we wanted to try and avoid the most dangerous points on the comet surface. So ultimately, the landing site that was selected was the least difficult landing site for us to be able to deploy to. Describe a bit more what this washing machine sized lump of metal looks like and what equipment is on it, what scientific equipment is on board. The original Rosetta mission was actually a, a comet sample return. You can look on the internet for videos from the Giotto spacecraft. This was uh, Europe's first deep space mission to a comet, to Comet Halley, and also to Greg Skellerop. And in that time frame, in the 80s and, and early 90s, already then was where Rosetta was born. And there were discussions there about this comet sample return mission. It very quickly became clear that this was quite a difficult task to implement. So it changed from a comet sample return to a mission where we would go and deploy a lander to the surface of the comet. That's kind of the next best thing of getting a sample and bringing it back to the laboratory on Earth. Instead, you send the best laboratory up to the, the body that you want to investigate. And that's what ultimately Rosetta represents. It's got the best instruments on board the orbiter and the best instruments on board the lander, Philae, to do the job that you want to do when you're at a comet, whether you're orbiting around it and sampling the, the coma and observing the nucleus, the global structure of the body, or if you want to deploy, as Philae did, to the surface and actually scratch and sniff the surface itself. Now, Philae has a number of instruments specifically designed to do what you want to do when you're on the surface of a comet so as i say we have we're scratching so we have a drill that would sample the the, the, the upper layers of the surface of this of the comet we have spectrometers which kind of sniff and, and, and sample what the material that or the composition of this uh, surface is like, as well as measuring the, the local environment in terms of the, the magnetic fields, the, the plasma interactions that we get around that. And also, we have a number of cameras as well to see what, what the locale looks like. But with those cameras, you can also get a, a very good analysis of the nature of the ongoing geology, for want of a better word, of, of how the comet has come about and, and where we think it's evolved from. You mentioned earlier the unexpected landing or number of landings landings that Philae did, where did it end up in relation to where you're expecting it to land? We had targeted the Philae lander to land, got within 120 metres of where we aimed for, uh, from a distance of 23 kilometres, actually. The deployment mechanisms or the mechanisms on the lander that were supposed to secure it to the comet surface, this was important because the comet surface has a gravity of about 10 to hundred thousandths of that on Earth. We had ice screws, or we have ice screws on the feet of the lander. We also have harpoons, and we had a gas thruster on the top of the uh, lander. Now, we, we had an idea, or we knew that the gas thruster wasn't going to work, so we were relying on the harpoons to secure the body, or the, to secure the lander to the surface of the comet. And it appears that actually they didn't fire at all. So basically what happened, the, the lander landed, and because it wasn't secured, the ice screws aren't really enough just to, to hold it on. It looked like it's quite a dusty few centimetres on the top of the, com on the surface of the comet. So it subsequently, 
unlanded, as it were, and then scooted across the surface of the comet or above the surface of the comet, going up to uh, tens of metres in height. And one part of the comet, we can see that from the data, some of the, some of the telemetry that was coming through, landed again and then finally landed about a kilometre away from the original target, just over the ridge of one of the other target regions we were targeting. At the moment, we know roughly where the lander is, but we have not yet visually identified the final resting place. But we have a reasonably good idea based on the telemetry and the radio signals that we've been when we were receiving data from the lander during uh, the November period. Now, anybody who was watching the mission on social media will remember the yeah, incredibly emotional moments where the lander went into hibernation. So what's its status now? What happened and what's its position now? Well, ultimately, the lander's done what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to have a three phases, a separation, descent and landing phase, a first science sequence phase, and then go into long-term science. The bit between first science sequence and long-term science was always designed to have a hibernation period where the batteries were going to have to recharge using solar energy. It's just that the end of the actual modified first science sequence, so we had to change things on the fly because we weren't secured to the surface. We had to make uh, on-the-fly decisions, or the lander team had to make on-the-fly decisions on what they could do and what they couldn't do that could potentially put the lander in jeopardy during that modified first science sequence. But because of where we landed, which is a bit darker than the targeted landing space, we haven't got enough sun at the moment. So it's in hibernation or has been in hibernation longer than planned, but ultimately, there, uh, you know, there's there's a silver lining to all this. I'm a glasses half full person. We managed to get measurements not from one place, but from multiple points on the surface of the comet. We have measurements from three places in, on, for certain instruments across the surface of the comet. And also, we will, when the spacecraft, when the lander comes out of hibernation, we will be in a period where we weren't expecting to have the lander in existence. If it had landed in the middle of the targeted region, we were only expecting to have the lander survive until March time period. But now where it's shadowed and in a certain area it's going to be operating during a time that we hadn't expected during some of the most active times of the comet's life so it's all there to to continue it's it, it's we, we have to be patient and wait for the lander to come out of hibernation but there's going to be some fantastic stuff to do once it does come out of hibernation there is nothing definite about anything for space operations and space science and uh, and travel within space anything that you do on a spacecraft has a, a level of risk even though you've done it a hundred times the hundred first time may mean that it's it's not going to work at the moment just based on knowledge of roughly how much solar energy the or at least by hours the lander was getting in november we can calculate how that would increase based on just the proximity of the sun so we're getting closer to the sun so the energy delivered to the lander will increase as we get closer and closer to the sun and also the nature of the rotation of the comet in its orbit is such that it will have darker regions exposed to the sun so we, we have seasonal changes so we move into a, a kind of summer where the region where we believe the lander is at the moment it will become better illuminated in general able to learn in that short period of time before Philae went into hibernation one of the important we got or there were a number of important results we got some signatures of organics from the surface from a number of the uh, a couple of the instruments we got ideas of the magnetic field perturbations that were that, that were observed as the lander was bouncing across the surface we also got our first measurements of nucleus interior so we have a special instrument called concert which has a radio transmitter on the orbiter and the lander and the signals between the two are perturbed when the nucleus is in between the two of them and 
And with that, we can make this tomography experiment and actually look at what the inside of the, the comet nucleus is like. So it's the first time that measurement has been made and that's been done. So that was carried out. We want to try and localize, well, get, get an accurate fix on where the lander is to make that measurement the best it can be, but the data is there. So we've made that measurement. We just have to hone it down and, and make it accurate. Another measurement that was made was by the MUPAS instrument. This was a hammer that was tapping into the surface and it, it kind of revealed a very, very hard subsurface layer. So one could say that it's very ice-like. In fact, that's the indications that we're getting, that there seems to be a very hard subsurface layer. Beyond about 10, say, centimetres of very fine dust-like material, there seems to be a very, very hard subsurface layer. So going back to the initial landing and the fact that the harpoons didn't function, it may have been beneficial to the survival of this mission in terms of not making the lander actually become another orbiter. Through Newton's laws, if the harpoons had fired and didn't actually uh, penetrate this hard subsurface layer, they may have just forced the lander back into orbit around the comet, and that would have been quite complicated. So that was one of the findings that I, I was interested in in terms of uh, what if. But that's also exciting, talking about the sublimation procedure of, uh, and also the fact that we haven't seen evidence for surface ice, but this is evidence for surface ice. And then connecting with the amount of water we're seeing coming off of the surface into in its gaseous form makes a nice connection there. So we We've detected something we really believe is a subsurface layer of ice. What about the, the composition of that water? There's a familiar theory that the water on Earth may have, back in the planet's history, come from comets. But now, that's is that looking less likely because of the composition of the water that we found? One of the major first results we were looking to get or looking to measure was known as a deuterium to hydrogen ratio. This is kind of looking at the flavour of the water that's coming off of the comet. And we can compare the ratio of those uh, flavours to other entities within the solar system and it gives you an idea of where that body came from and gives you kind of a time history. Now previous observations were made of this particular measurement via the Herschel telescope and they were looking at Jupiter-class comets as Churumov-Gerasimenko is and found that actually this flavour of water, this deuterium to hydrogen ratio is similar to that of Earth. Now that was different to previous observations of comets. So this was a, a new thing. Previously we thought well, the asteroids fit very well with this picture, they, they look like they are, are a valid uh, mechanism for depositing water to Earth. Just backpedaling here, why why do we look at this? Well, in the early phases of the solar system, there are a number of theories as to how the Earth evolved to how it is today. There are wet Earth theories where we believe water has always been on the Earth, or at least been retained by the Earth. But then there are dry Earth theories where we believe in the early phases of the solar system that all the water that existed on the Earth was actually boiled off by the vicinity of the sun. So for us to be here, something must have re-delivered that water. Now, prior to these Herschel results, asteroids were looked upon as being the viable mechanism, but these Herschel results kind of threw a spanner in the works in that they were showing that comets also had a similar flavour of water to that observed on Earth, in, in Earth's oceans and also the asteroids. Now, Trumov-Girisomenko's results from the Rosina instrument showed that actually this comet has a very, very high D2H ratio, far from that of Earth, much higher than the Earth's D2H ratio, much higher than any other comet we've observed. That actually indicates that it comes from outside the solar system, so the outskirts of the solar system in the Kuiper belt, and indicates that it's a very primordial object and actually fits better with the previous picture that we had, that 
asteroids are the most likely dominant delivery mechanism of uh, water to Earth. Uh, it doesn't say that comets aren't part or a component of that, but it shows that, that the asteroids are the likely major contributor to this deposition of water onto the Earth. This result also, as I was saying, shows that the comet is very old. It's, it's a real primordial object. And so any other measurements we make on the comet, we can use that as a, as a page, as it were, as a blank page or an introduction to putting into context any of the other observations we make in terms of the primordial context. Just one more question then. What does the future hold for both Rosetta and Feline missions? What's next? The Rosetta mission was designed to continue throughout this year, up until the end of this year, uh, Philae, as I said, if it had remained in, on site J on Jilkia, it would have been there until around about March time period operating. When it does come out of hibernation, we expect to have some long-term science. So in the next few months, we hope to get some more science out of Philae. But the orbiter continues to do science. It's just completed its closest flyby of the comet, just below six kilometers above the surface it passed on the 14th of February, getting a real feel for how light interacts with the surface. We really flew over high noon, as it were, the subsolar region. So the sun was at the back of the spacecraft looking down at the surface of the comet, seeing how the different wavelengths of light were interacting with the surface to get us an idea of how the nucleus surface reacts to light. And also we were able to probe the lowest parts of the atmosphere of the comet as well and understand how the comet coma develops to the higher altitudes that we're more familiar with. Now, the subsequent months that we'll have, we are approaching uh, perihelion. So the closest approach to the sun, that will occur in August this year. That's when the comet will begin to be its most active. We'll have tons of material coming off of the comet per second. And that's going to be a, a fun time for the spacecraft. We're going to have all of this at ringside seat. We're going to carry out a number of flybys. Once a month, we'll either go closer the comet or far away and kind of hang there observing the comet as it rotates underneath us uh, every 12 hours. And that's how this year is planned at the moment to continue. In the meantime, when Philae comes out of hibernation, we'll bolt that into our current plans of operations and, and how we get the data down. The discussions at the moment are what we do after this year. We are currently funded till the end of this year, but we believe we have enough onboard materials, so basically the, the main logistical issue is fuel, to continue into next year. Ultimately, next year, we'll get to a situation after summer into autumn where the spacecraft's beginning to get too far away from the sun to power all of its onboard entities. So we'd have to think about maybe putting it into hibernation again. But as we're limited in fuel, we believe the most appropriate thing to do is to actually deorbit Rosetta onto the surface of the comet. We are limited in terms of fuel and distance from the sun. So as we get further away from the sun, we have less power. After summer next year, it's likely, or it will be the case, that we won't have enough power to power all the onboard systems. And we get into a situation, as happened before with the mission, that we'd have to go into hibernation. But as we have limited fuel on board, it's not really a viable thing to do is to put it back into hibernation when we haven't got much fuel to come out of hibernation and do any further science. So the discussions within the team have been focused on trying to deorbit the spacecraft at some time next year to get as close as possible to the surface with the Rosetta orbiter, make measurements as close as we can, and then finally deploy Rosetta onto the surface of the comet as well. Dr. Matt Taylor, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. No problems, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at 
Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.